Welcome to the AFP Report. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Monday, June 19th, 2023. The AFP Report is a podcast series where I will be interviewing reporters and contributors to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, as well as other special guests. Please consider subscribing to the newspaper if you are not already. Subscription details can be found at AmericanFreePress.net. And today I am joined by Lee McMichael, the wife of Greg McMichael and mother of Travis McMichael. Two men found guilty of murdering Ahmaud Arbery in February 2020 in one of the most egregious and politically motivated prosecutions in modern American history. Okay, Lee McMichael, welcome to the program. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I know that you and your family have been through a lot, to say the least. I've been following the case since I first heard about it in early 2020, and my heart really does go out to you and your family. What has happened is really one of the most outrageous acts of politically motivated prosecutions we've seen in recent American history, I think, and it's just absolutely horrific what has happened to your family. And of course, I'm referring to Greg McMichael, who is your husband, and Travis McMichael, who is your son. And these are two of the three men who have been convicted of, quote-unquote, murdering Ahmaud Arbery, who has been presented as this innocent, harmless, black jogger who was racially profiled and targeted by Greg and Travis, as well as a third man named William Roddy Bryan, who we'll talk much more about as we proceed here. And this all happened on February 23rd of 2020 in your community of, is it Satilla Shores? Am I pronouncing that correctly? That is correct. Satilla Shores. Yeah, and this is uh, basically from what I you know, can gather looking at the map. It's like a community in the Brunswick, Georgia area, right? It is, yes. Right. Now, of course, I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with at least the basics of the case. Um, we're going to talk about much more of the details. But um, Greg and Travis and, 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 and Roddy Bryan, for that matter, they have been charged and prosecuted for Arbery's death by both the state of Georgia and the federal government. And they're all currently in prison, correct? That is correct. Okay. Now, again, like I said, we'll get into more of the details here. But just to get started, can you please just introduce yourself and talk about your family and talk about Greg and Travis and who they were, what sort of lives they led? and what sort of men they were, or they are, I should say. Yes, I, I am um, Lee McMichael. I grew up in Brunswick, Georgia. My father was a physician here um, forever. And um, I met Greg grew up here also, Greg McMichael. He grew up here, and we met in 1983 when I was 23 and he was 26. And um, I had finished school, and I was taking a little break, and I was working in a little, uh, like a, kind of like a Walmart, but it was a, a little store, and he was a security guard. He had started his career in police work in 1983, and that's where we met, and we were married within a year. And he continued with the Glen County Police Department, and um, in 1986, we had Travis and um, had Lindsay in 1990, but he complete, uh, continued with the Glen County Police for several years. He left them at one time and went with the city police department. Then he went 
uh, with a boat salesman. Um, and during that time, I went back to nursing school when Travis was nine months old and got my degree, my associate degree in nursing and started working at the local hospital here. But um, Greg, he um, ended up, he missed law enforcement. That was his first love. And he was always, he was about integrity and honesty, being a law enforcement officer. Um, he went back to the DA's office. I think it was, I can't remember, 19, I can't remember. He worked there for, for several years, several years. He went through three DAs and uh, he was the chief investigator with Brunswick DA's office. And, and and this was after he had served in in the police department. Yes, this okay. was after the he he went from Glen County Police Department. He was there, I think, for ten years, and then he went to City Police Department briefly. Um, he was getting older, and you know he he knew that it, it about street work was not was burning out. It was time to get off the street, so he went to work at different jobs. When I got out of nursing school and started to work and found out that that was that he loved police work. So he wanted to get back in there. And he had worked with the DA's office here with many cases. I mean, he solved some kind of murders here. He worked some really high profile murders in Brunswick, Georgia. And um, matter of fact, he went and watched the death sentence performed on one of the the guys that he it was his, he was the reason that they called him. But anyway, so he um, wanted to get back into um, police work, so he went to work for the DA's office. They hired him immediately, and he worked there and, and retired from there in 19, no, yeah, 2019. He had retired June 2019 from the district attorney's office. And Travis was born, as I said, in 86. He grew up, he was... I mean, in third grade, he was the Mr. Citizen for his manners and his behavior. He was well-behaved throughout school. Um, he was on the rifle team in high school. And when he came out of school, he joined uh, the Coast Guard and served in San Francisco, Mississippi, and then down in Jacksonville at Mayport. And he met a young lady, and they had a child. And he got out of the Coast Guard basically because he didn't want to leave this area. He wanted his child to be raised here around us. And, of course, they didn't work out. And he had to, she had to move back home, and he had to move back home because the house they were renting was being sold, and they were splitting up. So he moved back here, and they got joint custody of their child. They shared week to week. They are great with that child. They're really close friends, and she's very supportive, her and her husband. But he was living here probably about a year, not even a year before this all happened. And um, wow. But he was, he was, um, yeah, he went down to um, South America from from San Francisco. He was on the SS Sherman. And did a lot of drug interdiction down there. He did it here. He saved he saved quite a few lives 
in Jacksonville. Um, and he's a, he's a good guy. He's all around caring, loving guy, but he is law mm -hmm. enforcement also. Mm -hmm. Now, and he was uh, trained extensively in, in the use of firearms, and he was also a mechanic, correct? Yes, he was. He was a he was a mechanic. He was trained in firearms because he was also a boarding officer in the Coast Guard. Right. And um, and uh, so he he was really good with firearms, with shotgun. Mm -hmm. Um, he was trained in um use of force. Uh, that kind of training throughout the Coast Guard. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Now, there there are a lot of important details about both Greg and Travis, their background, and you know, sort of their professional careers on the website. Uh, your website is mcmichaeltrial.com, and it not only has important information about their background and just what type of men they were, what type of careers they had, um, but also all sorts of other details about the case, about the background details, about who Ahmad Arbery was and what sort of things he was involved with, involved with over the course of his life. So I highly encourage people to check out the website. There's a lot of uh, very eye-opening details that thoroughly expose how fraudulent the, the mainstream media narrative of this entire situation was and remains to, to you know today. I basically read through the entire website and all the details and evidence that you provide. And I mean, again, it just absolutely destroys the official narrative of this racially charged event. Now, um, as you know, um, I did write an article for American Free Press last year. I think it was in late August, shortly mm -hmm. after Greg and Travis were found guilty of federal hate crimes, right? I mean, they were originally prosecuted by the state of Georgia, and then the, the, they were also prosecuted again by the federal government for federal hate crimes charges. And they were found guilty in, in, in both of those cases, correct? That's correct. Right. Correct. Right. So, you know what I wanted to do? Um, I just wanted to briefly read from that article and then um, kind of turn it over to you to provide some, you know, some more details and in, in, in background information. And again, this was published last year, so uh, almost a year ago. It was in August of 2022. And I write here, um, in perhaps one of the most outrageous politically motivated prosecutions in the history of the United States – a federal judge sentenced a white father and his son to life in prison for the February 2020 shooting death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man from Georgia with a significant and underreported criminal background. Travis McMichael, then he was then 36 at the time, a former U.S. Coast Guard mechanic, and his father, Greg McMichael, a then 66-year-old former Glynn County, Georgia police officer who went on to work for the local prosecutor's office, were sentenced on August 8, 2022, after being convicted of federal hate crimes charges. In February of 2022, they received life sentences after being found guilty of state murder charges in Arbery's death. One of their neighbors, William Roddy Bryan, a 52-year-old local shop mechanic, was also sentenced to 35 years in federal prison for his role in filming the pursuit and subsequent shooting which occurred after Arbery attacked Travis, physically striking him in the face and attempting to wrestle the firearm he legally possessed away from him. Like much of the country, readers are no doubt familiar with the twisted and incomplete narrative promulgated by the establishment media in this case, which gained national attention at the height of the media-fueled Black Lives Matter hysteria 
generated by the death of drug abuser George Floyd in May of 2020. The McMichaels were alleged to have racially profiled Arbery and, quote, hunted him down after discovering him jogging in their Centilla Shores neighborhood, a coastal development in the town of Brunswick, Georgia. It was speculated that Brian worked in coordination with the McMichaels to target Arbery simply because he was black. The mainstream story goes that they chased Arbery in their pickup trucks after finding the, after finding him in their neighborhood on a sunny Sunday afternoon on February 23rd, 2020. And of course, and, and the article goes on and I get into some of the, some of the other details and, you know, the, some of the history, you know, the history of Arbery and what was happening in your neighborhood at the time leading up to this incident, which we can talk more about as we proceed here. So, um, can you, why don't, why don't. I just turn it over to you. What was going on in the lead up to this fatal confrontation with Arbery on February 23rd, 2020? Well, for about a year or a year and a half, cars were being broken into. Um, Things were missing in yards. People were on edge. Um, I mean, it was like every two or three weeks. And I think that the, you know, the, the, with the state court, the big deal was the police did not have reports, but we did have reports of all the call-ins. I think there was only two or three reports. I can't remember exactly of them coming out, but you know, it got to where you just people weren't calling anymore, and there was nothing done. Um, Greg's truck was broken in twice. My car was broken into. Uh, Travis had a little car. He went back into to work that the door was busted and the glove compartment was busted. The neighbor's car purse was stolen out of her, her car and it was just continuing. So, um, the, what led to that day was that, uh, Mr. English that lives down the street was building that house and he had it opened and he had, brought his folks, he lived in another town, but he brought his folks here, and he had $2,500 worth of electronics missing out of the boat. So he went and got security cameras. Now, now real quick, just to provide a little bit more context, Satilla Shores, you guys are like basically right on the water, right? Or at least... Oh, yeah, we're, wait, matter of fact, um, I've got a dock in my backyard. Right, yeah, and, and this is pretty common in that in that neighborhood? Right. Yeah. Right. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a nice little community, you know, right on the water and in English. And, and, and he, pl- he did play a key role in a lot of this because his property was constantly being, you know, people were pilfering through his equipment. He had stuff stolen, as you mentioned. Right. And after, after this happened numerous times leading up to February 23rd, 2020, um, he had placed surveillance cameras, which I think you were just about to get into. And he actually caught Ahmad Harbury multiple times on camera going through his property, you know, likely stealing stuff. I don't know if they've – if that's been totally conclusively proven, but basically being on his property in the middle of the night when he has no business being on this property. And it was like an open construction site, right? Right, and he was down on his dock, wandering around his dock. He was up and and, and they called it plundering through his boats in his house. It, was he all? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but was he just to be clear? He he was also there. They also, they also caught him on camera during the day as well, right? Like in the actual construction site. Um, I 
I can't remember if they caught him during the day or not. Okay. Um, but but either way, there were multiple documented multiple. examples. Looked, yeah. You know, and they also in the in the um, court proceedings, they said it was bright. No, it was not bright. That was the camera, the infrared cameras that made it look bright. And um, but anyway, we you know and and Travis on the 11th of February. He went. He had a little car that he he was working with King at Kings Bay. He was uh, with a contract company, and what his job was escort. He was a, a boatsman, and what his job was helping to escort and guard the submachine submarines as they went out of port. And um, he had the highest security cl- clearance in the nation to do that. But anyway, so he went. He went to. Um, get gas in the car he went to get gas in his little car and um when he was driving down there he saw that in the construction site he had a portalette and he saw someone standing behind the portalette and so he shined his lights on him and when he did he reached into his pants as if he had a gun and then he ducked in the shadows now, so Travis called the police. Right, and th- this was the incident on February 11th of 2020, so not even two weeks before the fatal encounter. Now, even prior to that, though, didn't Travis have a firearm stolen from his vehicle? Yes, he did. January 1st, 2020, he had a firearm stolen from his truck. Right, um, so so he had, I mean, r- reasonable suspicion to believe that this well, individual he was encountering potentially could have had his own gun that he stole from him. Right. Exactly. He, um, yeah, he, he didn't know if Aubrey did it, but of course with him plundering through the neighborhood, he had suspicions that he had taken his gun. So he thought he was armed and at that point when they called the police, everybody came up, the police came up, the neighbors came up and everybody had a gun because this had been going on. And they, the neighbor that owned the house showed them the videotapes of all the times before with Aubrey going through the house and Greg and Travis. I mean, it was a clear shot, clear video and uh, so they could identify him pretty, pretty well. So after that, the week after is when Greg was out here working on boat cushions for our boat. He was in the driveway, and Aubrey came running by, and he wasn't jogging. He had it hooked up. He was running, and Greg recognized him immediately from the videos of him being in that house. Right. And so Greg went and asked, told Travis, come on, let's go. That guy just ran by here. And that's when Travis got his shotgun and Greg got the gun and they went into pursuit for Aubrey. Okay. But yeah. And, and, oh, go ahead. Something else that's very interesting that's in our website, John, is also on January 1st. I can't remember what time it is. Oh, sorry. You know what? You're, you're, next to 
Sorry, no, you 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 were kind of cutting out. You said something. What happened in in early January as well? Uh, the, the the neighborhood next to us uh, has a video the same day, January first, twenty twenty. Um, same day Travis's gun was missing of a black male that is built exactly like Aubrey had a black bandana around his neck as Aubrey always wore and he was going into her garage and he had a gun in his hand and they had a lot of stuff missing when they left you could see the car in the video picked him up and as he was leaving he dropped the black bandana on the ground and uh we had begged, or Lee, or our, our investigator had begged the, um, you know, wanted that tested for DNA. To, and, to, to confirm whether or not it was, in fact, Arbery. Right. And right. the Glen County, I don't even know if that piece of the Glen County police wouldn't test. I don't know, if, you know. But anyway, when he so was. So there was. When, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, you know yeah, what? You, you're, kind of, you're kind of cutting up. I don't know if. I'm sorry. Maybe they were losing the connection. Go ahead. No, I just I just want everybody to be able to hear exactly what you're saying. Go ahead. You're breaking up now. Uh oh. Hello. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm I'm here. Can you hear me? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can yeah, you hear me? Okay. Um. Yeah, I can hear you. Uh oh, it says poor connection. Okay. Um. That's definitely um probably on your end. Okay. Um, but let's let's maybe try to continue. Um, so th this incident on January first, it, it's you know, maybe suspected that it was Arbery involved in this. I mean, with the with the bandana that you mentioned and the gun being missing. Um, what we do know though is that, and, and you can find this all very well documented right on mcmichaeltrial.com in the timeline section. The history of Ahmad Arbery and, and just sort of, you know, what type of person he was. And I mean, it's just a lengthy, you know, history of getting involved in fights and stealing and um, being diagnosed with the very significant, um, I don't know if it's necessarily a mental disorder, but it's a bit, yeah, like behavior, mental disorder called schizoaffective disorder, which basically, yeah. um, from what I understand, I don't know all the details about it, but he he would basically sort of like hallucinate and hear voices that would tell him to like hurt people or to attack people, right? Yes. So, you know, again, a history of, of violence, of getting involved in fights, of stealing, of drug use even. Um, he had multiple run-ins with law enforcement in the years leading up to this incident. Now, um, of course, I'm painting a very, you know, sort of negative portrayal of this young man i i don't i don't know it, exactly all the details of this man's life but this is certainly something worth taking into consideration when analyzing the situation um now t tell me was any of this background information allowed to be even admitted into evidence in court no it was not see and, and i yeah. just find that so i mean again just another example of just how totally rigged this entire trial was did what what reason did they give for that do you, do you have any idea like what what well, justification 
think the law changed. There was something with the law that Greg and Travis did not know his background, did not know him before, therefore they couldn't use it. But the mental health, um, the mental health history was very, uh, it should have been used. I mean, the judge had a long time to sit and think about that one, how to get that one out, because um, the fact that he attacked Travis the way he did um, was, you know, it, it showed his mental health. Yeah, I mean, it was a very, uh, a very risky and, thing to do, to say the least. I mean, to attack a, a grown man with a firearm that, and you know, you yourself are unarmed. You know, not not a very, I think, not a very wise decision to make. And and despite the fact, so maybe you know, of course, uh, Travis and Greg did not know this extensive history of Arbery and you know his run-ins with the law and his history of of using drugs and getting in fights and stealing and robbing and, and, you know, all these other problems, but they did, you know, recognize him from some of the surveillance video. And there was a, a yes, as you, as you explained, you know, a long history of problems in the neighborhood of things being stolen, things going missing of, you know, just all sorts of petty windows. crimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, the children were not allowed to come out and play at night, not all of them. Yeah, yeah, and and this is all very well – this is not hearsay. This is not rumors. This was all documented in social media posts and conversations and even you know calls to police officers, right? Calls to the local police department? Yep, it was. So it was – yeah, it was an ongoing problem in the neighborhood. Now, I got to ask you, where – um, like Arbery, like where, did he live – he must have lived somewhere – Maybe not right in Centilla Shores, but did he live in the area? He lived in, he did in Brunswick, live. right? He did. he did. He didn't live um, maybe two miles across Highway 17 into another neighborhood. Um, but, you know, it, it, it wasn't too close either. I mean, and we never, nobody ever saw him jogging through the neighborhood. Right. So. Right, yeah. So very suspicious behavior, to say the least. Um, now, I'm trying to think what would be the best way to do this. You know what, actually, why don't we talk um, specifically about what happened that day? I mean, you had mentioned that Greg was outside um, sort of repairing repairing cushions for your boat, correct, when he, when he saw Arbery, <laughs> like, basically sprinting down the street? Yes. Okay, and then, and then you were you were inside, correct, with your grandson? I was when he came in and got Travis. I I was watching my daughter and I were watching a movie, and he came and got Travis, and um I was in there with the grandson and my daughter, and they took off. Okay, so so Greg comes in. What what does he say to Travis? Like what what can you kind of walk us through what happened? He said, "Come on, let's go. It's that guy that was in the house down there." He just came by me, and he was hauling ass, quote unquote. Right. So they, what what happens from there? They they obviously arm themselves and get in the pickup truck at that point. They, they do. They arm themselves and come out and get in the pickup truck. Travis sees the neighbor down the street, who's on the videotape. He's on the phone to the police at that time, and he's pointing in our direction. Of course, when he got in court, he said that, no, he was just waving his hands because everybody was very scared. So Travis saw that as he was backing out and took off down the street after him. 
um, Travis, uh, when they rode by Roddy's house, there's one point where Travis is stopped and back up. Travis is talking to Ahmad. I mean, he's saying, hey, buddy, what are you doing? What, you know, hey, we just want to talk to you. You know, at that point, he's, he doesn't see his guns. They're trying to talk to him, and he is he is running. He's not going to stop. So they 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 basically caught up with him pretty quickly. It sounds like. Yeah. Okay, and and they're attempting to have a conversation with him to get him to stop to see what exactly is going on. Why is he running like this? I mean, yeah. they clearly they clearly suspected that this was the same person they had seen in the video surveillance footage. They suspected this was, you know, the the guy that was going through Larry English's property and, and stealing things and stuff like that. So they did. They, it seems like they absolutely had reason to suspect that this guy was up to. Well, they, they thoroughly believe. Yeah. Greg, yeah. They're both very observant. They're both um, police officers. You know, right. Right. Exactly. Both officers. So when they when they finally catch up with Arbery, there you know tra- it sounds like Travis is trying to talk to him. So Greg must have been driving. No, no, oh. Travis was driving. Oh, okay, okay, so I have it backwards. Okay, and yeah. and so Greg was trying to to speak with Arbery. No, Travis was. He oh, was Travis. Like, okay, so he yes. was driving and trying to speak with him. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, no. and then so so what what happens from there? I mean, how, how does the truck stop? How do they get out? Like, what, what do, do you know the like, I, I what led up to that? I don't know the details of it. I don't know the track of it um but travis it's travis says said that they made contact with him four times four times before the incident happened um and just trying to get him to stop trying to talk him down and somehow they got on the road right here by the house and travis stopped the truck and told his dad we're the police we're the police. And he said, did you call him? And his dad said, no, I thought you did. Or so, something to that fact. Travis dialed the number and gave his phone to his dad and stepped out of the truck. And Aubrey was coming up the road um, toward Travis. I think Roddy was filming it. He was behind Aubrey. And Aubrey moved over to the driver's side of the truck. And Travis said at that point, he was going to attack me right there. Travis lifted the gun, which he learned is de-escalating. And it worked because he turned and took a different path. And when he did, Travis was thinking about his dad, who at this point was sitting in the back of the pickup truck. And the reason is because he had his car seat in the front and Greg couldn't maneuver. So Greg got in the back of the truck and Greg was on the phone to the police. And Aubrey came around Greg and Travis was thinking, you know, that his dad was in danger. So dad, he stepped up so he could keep his eye on Aubrey. And when he came around the truck, Aubrey took a beeline across the truck and attacked, grabbed the gun and was trying to take it away from Travis when when he was shot. Now, if I understand correctly, didn't he also strike him in the strike Travis in the face? Absolutely. Yeah. In the head. You can see it in the video. Right. And also another detail, um, Roddy, William Roddy Bryant, who who was following and, and, you know, captured the video footage that went viral. um, He, from what I understand, he actually testified that Arbery was actually attempting to get into his vehicle and was like confronting him during this as well. Like, you know, 
sort of in a threatening way, you know, trying to banging on his window, trying to open up his, his, his door to, to get into the vehicle. And, and he had his windows rolled up. He had his doors locked. So obviously that, you know, Ar- Arbery wasn't successful in, in doing that, but he was even confronting and, and sort of threaten almost threatening, you know, in a threatening manner um, towards Roddy Bryan as well. Exactly. Yes, he did. Now, and this is something I didn't even know about really, at least all the details until I read your website today um, talking about you have a section on the website, the, the trial, and you get into the details and some of the testimony that uh, this William Roddy Bryant provided to, um, I think it was the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. Um, he claimed that he heard Travis stand over Arbery after he had been shot and was basically either dead or on the verge of dying. Um, call him, you know, the N word, refer to him as a, as an N word. Um, right. Now, and, and this was something that has not been substantiated by anybody. It's been denied by Travis. It's been deni- denied by virtually, you know, everybody involved in this situation. Um, and, and Roddy had his windows rolled up. He was hard, mm-hmm. he was hard of hearing. Um, he had his, he also, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh no, he was probably, um, Travis's phone that was recording everything, right? Yeah, because Greg had put the the phone on the side of the truck. When he jumped down to uh, go toward Travis, the phone was sitting there recording everything. Right. And that phone phone recording, after an extensive investigation, no doubt, by authorities, they could not even demonstrate that he had ever said anything like this. Well, John, let me tell you, if they could have, it would have been during the trial. But see, this was done, this was this was something the media picked up in the preliminary hearing. It was not during the trial. This was the preliminary hearing where, you know, they not in front of a jury. It's just showing what evidence and each of them sharing the evidence they have. And it was like a a surprise gotcha that Travis stood over the body and called him an F and N. Right. And, and, this, he, and this was total hearsay. There was nothing to substantiate this at all. It was basically no. the testimony of the Georgia. PBI, yeah. Yeah. Basically the, the testimony of this Georgia Bureau of investigative officer or detective that had interviewed William Roddy Bryan. Right. And this was like his fourth interview. Roddy saw what was coming down the pipe, and he was going to turn state witness. He knew he was going to be arrested because it was it was bad in Brunswick. They were demanding they were demanding arrest, and um, so I mean he was he would say anything he could, but Roddy was ninety feet away. It was measured in his truck with the windows up, the doors locked. How he heard that, I do not know. And in the video. Travis is going toward his daddy. Travis is pacing like a wild man. He never stopped. Travis is going away Af- after, from the body. After the gun had gone off, yeah. Immediately. And the right. policeman pulled up immediately. The police officer was here immediately. This did not happen. This was not said, but the media is still harping on that. And they went through it during the whole trial, made sure everybody heard that. When it was not even in the trial, the prosecuting attorney 
Linda Donikowski had Travis on the stand. Don't you think if she thought he had said that, that she would ask him about it? It was never brought up ever again. So it was basically, go ahead, sorry. She knew that our guys, our lawyers could blow a hole in it. Right. So it was basically just claimed in this pretrial hearing, and of course the media ran with it, and that was the narrative. I mean, in and addition, that, in addition to the other, you know, dishonest and deceptive tactics that were used from the very beginning, oh, that he yes. was an innocent jogger and he was just running through the neighborhood, and you know, he was racially profiled, you know. So yeah, it, it was it was a, basically a, it was it was a dishonest trick that they used to to instill yeah. this narrative. Well, they- they used a lot of them in the in the trial. They Travis had just bought that pickup truck, and he had a he had an old Georgia State tag on the front of it, and it's got stars and bars on it. Well, they kept calling it the Rebel flag. It was not. It was the State of Georgia flag. I mean, tag car tag. That I can't remember well, what and, year it came and, out. But. And you know what? Even if it was. Who cares? <laughs> you well, know, I mean, I, mean I know, of course, of course, that's that's very a, a very demonized symbol in, in modern society. But, you know, it's just that the whole situation is just ridiculous. By the way, you know, I, I have to bring this up because I was also I, I wanted to see like, I mean, of course, you know, we, we kind of know the official mainstream narrative. But I just went to Wikipedia today and I'm looking at the uh, it's the murder of Ahmad Arbery page on Wikipedia. Let me just read you this first paragraph. And just how like 100% like backwards the entire official story is. So this is what it says here. On February 23rd, 2020, Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man, was murdered during a racially motivated hate crime while jogging in Santilla Shores, a neighborhood near Brunswick, near Brunswick in Glen County, Georgia. Erroneously, erroneously assuming he was a burglar, three white men pursued Arbery in their trucks for several minutes using the vehicles to block his path as he tried to run away. Two of the men, Travis McMichael and his father, Gregory McMichael, were armed in one vehicle. Their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, was in another vehicle. After overtaking Arbery, Travis McMichael exited his truck and assaulted Arbery with the shotgun. As Arbery attempted to defend himself, Travis McMichael fatally shot him, Brian recorded this confrontation and Arbery's murder on his cell phone. I mean, it's like literally the exact opposite of what happened. Yep. Yep. It's just unbelievable. I can't, I mean, this just shows you the power of the media and of these totally dishonest, no integrity in the, you know, in these, like these prosecutors, whether at the state level or at the federal level. I mean, just absolutely no integrity for the facts or for, you know, true justice. No, they, they were they. It was a, at a very bad time, and um, it was an agenda that they were pursuing. Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, I mentioned previously some of the evidence that was not allowed. Um, into trial, and I know, and this was at the state level, right? This the the timeline of the trial that you have on yeah. the website is it that's the state of Georgia trial, right? That's that's correct. Okay, yeah. Um, let me see where that section is, um, because I just found that so outrageous. 
that all of the like yeah okay so here it is and do you mind if I just read this? There's four. There's four points okay. here. I mean, and it's just it just shows you how. And there's way more details we could probably talk about, but just the fact that none of what I'm about to read you was allowed into court. The judge, Judge uh, Walmsley, ruled that all of this was inadmissible and could not be brought forth for the jury to consider. Number one, and I mentioned this previously, Ahmad Arbery's history of arrests and convictions. Um, number two, Ahmad's documented history of mental illness. And you, you mentioned how he was diagnosed with this schizoaffective disorder um, and how he was not being treated for this mm-hmm. mental illness when he charged Travis and struggled for control of the shotgun. Plus, he had um, marijuana in his system, which makes him more aggressive. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Um, number three, the court ruled against the defense and would not allow us to present a firearms expert to explain Travis's actions in handling the shotgun, his weapon, you know, the weapon retention, etc. None of this, you know, basically all of this was consistent with his training and experience right. while serving right. in the U.S. Coast Guard. So he was not acting erratically. He was acting exactly how he was trained. And I mean, this is a man that was trained professionally in the use of firearms, right? That's correct. Um, let me see. And then finally, uh, the court ruled that the defense could not present evidence to show that the Centilla Shores neighborhood and an adjacent Royal Oaks neighborhood had lived under the perception of crime being out of control in the months before Ahmad's death. Police reports, 911 calls, social media posts and the like supported the fact that the neighborhood residents were in a constant state of fear, in part because of the videos of Ahmad seen snooping around the English property. Records would show a dramatic drop in 911 calls for police services to these neighborhoods following the tragic events of February 23rd, 2020. Yeah. So interesting how all of this very relevant and very important background details and contextual evidence is not allowed into this into this trial. Correct. Now, that's just one outrageous piece of evidence to show that this entire thing was just one big show trial. But can you also talk about maybe I'd like to talk about the jury selection and then also just the atmosphere, um, you know, leading up to the trial and certainly during the trial with these like armed Black Panthers militants, you know, parading around in the streets, intimidating people on bullhorns. So let's talk about the jury selection. Do Do you want to go through that briefly? Well, I, I did not attend the jury selection because I worked, but I, I um, it was uh, it was brutal. I mean, it took weeks to get a jury, a fair jury. Um, they were already everybody was already tainted by the media. Everybody was already had their minds made up. Um, and a lot of them got up there and told them, yeah, they they should go to prison for the rest of their lives. You know, a lot of them said that. Um. We live in a small town, so a lot of people did know us, so they were immediately struck out. I think they went – I may be corrected, but I think it was like the jury was, list was like a, uh, a thousand people. I mean it was yeah, – it, Yeah, it's, yeah, it says a thousand yeah, people. A thousand or, people. Yeah. And um, so um, at one point, you know, they had a juror up there, and, and our lawyers were excellent about trying to go through them. We, uh, you know, strike the ones that they saw that, you know, look at Facebook posts and look at the ones that they thought were biased. Um, they were, there was, uh, 
at one point there was a instruction by Ben Crumb, I guess his name is, uh, the lawyer, about just remember that you that you know you watch the news, but that's not going to make your mind up. Something to that point, you know. That's I can still judge fairly. Well, you guys, you guys have a screenshot from Lee Merritt. It looks like his Instagram page, and uh-huh. Lee Lee Merritt is one of these, you know, black race hustling attorneys that was involved in this case. He represented is Wanda Jones uh, Arbery's mother. Yes. Yeah. So he was, you know, he was the attorney for Wanda Jones, and here's a screenshot directly from his. Instagram page saying, encouraging people, you know, involved in the jury summons process to show up for jury duty and remember this phrase, I can be fair. Yes. yes. You know, I mean, this is just outrageous. I can be fair. And then we, you know, they, the investigator observed one guy coming out of the, um, of the being questioned in the jury pool and going out they had food trucks out there i mean it was a um, it was during election time was set up their booths with commissioner or vote for them but anyway so uh observed one of the ones on the that was on the jury oh geez lee lee i'm sorry You're, you're you're cutting up Okay. He, he observed. That? Uh, yeah, go ahead. He observed he had, him going out into the into the courtyard, you know, and family of Aubrey. And when he came back in, you know, they had him had him struck down. Of course, they saw him out there. Said he didn't know him, but he obviously knew him. Right. He, he, and, so he was embracing one of the family members of Aubrey. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, um, and, yeah. and one of the more outrageous details that, at least in my opinion, was Merritt was caught this, – this lawyer, Merritt, was caught taking photos of witnesses while they testified at the pretrial hearings and then sharing those pictures with the activist Sean King, who has this huge yeah. social media following and you know, a, you know, a live stream program and a radio program. And they were basically encouraging their listeners and followers, and many of whom are, you know, just anonymous, anonymous internet users, to harass and threaten these these witnesses. Correct, correct. Um, and he would put their he would put their names and what they did, and how they offered, you know, property for bail. Or uh, uh, this was during the bond hearing, and um. Yes, he was sending it to Sean King, and he was putting it out there. Sean King put all of our contact information out there, and it was it was horrific what I went through. You know, the stuff I got in the mail, the um, the hate mail I got, the the makeshift bombs I got in the mail. I had to get a post office box. I couldn't couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. But were you horrific. were you receiving um so like these are like th- obviously threatening trying to intimidate you i'm sure calling you all sorts of you know bad words foul you know foul language that sort of thing yes right yes 
Wow. Well, and I still Just get it from time to time. Yeah, I, I believe you. And then they then they had, you know, every, it seemed like every weekend they would have a demonstration out here, which is fine. You have a right to demonstrate. That's fine. But at one time they were, you know, I, I left for the weekend or wherever, and, and they would, the neighbors were talking about them running up on the property, on their property. And um, at one point the new Black Panther came, and they had guns, marching with guns. And um, even some of the county commissioners in town were talking about how they're going to burn Brunswick down if they're not found guilty. Um, it was just, it was horrific. I mean, there was, there was no chance. This is just a total, a total mockery of our legal system. Exactly. It was a mob rule. Well, and right so, from the very get-go, they were basically convicted in 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 the media i mean at least once it see what, what's interesting and, and we didn't even actually talk about this what's interesting is that when this incident happened in on february 23rd 2020 in the in, in you know the the weeks and, and maybe a month afterwards it, it was investigated right i mean it was investigated by the local da well actually could you provide those details because i know at one point there was like a conflict of interest because greg worked for you know obviously as you mentioned at the beginning he worked in the local DA's office. So it was outsourced, right? To a third party. Yes, it was. It was out. The And now I'm talking about the original investigation, the very yes. first investigation after this incident happened, it was outsourced to, it was his name Barnhill, I believe. Barnhill. Right. It was him. And, um, he, he had it. And I guess the Glen County police department were doing their investigation of it. And, um, Barnhill, um, I guess he had it for about two months, and he had come out. He, the family, uh, his son, I believe, worked for an office here, the DA's office here, and so they said there was a conflict of interest there, so it went to another DA, and Barnhill came out with a statement of why he believed the investigation proved that the guys were innocent, that it was not malice murder, it was self-defense, that there was reasonable suspicion that Arbery was, was, you know, in that house and that it was a citizen's arrest law, reason suspicion. Right. And you so, know what? Let me – I was going to say I actually have some of those details in the article that I wrote for American Free Press. Um, it, it, I'll, just, I'll just read it quick. It's just a couple – paragraphs, but it really does give you an, an, an insight into the original investigation conducted by George, Bar uh, George Barnhill. Now, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know he, he wasn't the local district attorney in Brunswick, Georgia, right? No. He was from another no, he county? Was he was from another county. Okay, right. So, I mean, he was a district attorney in Georgia, though. Now, he, and again, he originally investigated Arbery's death, and he saw no grounds for arresting either of the McMichaels or Brian who acted in accordance with the law in the state of Georgia at the time. Those laws have since been changed, by the way. Yeah. Um, and he stated so officially, the McMichaels and Brian were following Arbery in hot pursuit, according to Barnhill, with solid firsthand probable cause in their neighborhood, asking and telling him to stop. Barnhill concluded following the investigation, quote, it appears their intent was to stop and hold this criminal suspect until police arrived. Additionally, the McMichaels had firearms being carried in an open fashion, Barnhill noted, 
with neither of them known to be convicted felons or under felony supervision, showing their actions to be entirely in line with the law. Neither has anyone come forward to corroborate claims that the McMichaels were racist against black people, let alone that Travis, you know, leaned over Arbery after he shot him and, and called him, you know, a, a slur. Yeah. So, you know, this original investigation was a pretty open and shut case of, look, you know, this is – these guys acted within the law. This guy attacked a man w- legally carrying a firearm and struck him, you know, assaulted him, attempted to take the firearm away from him. I've even seen speculation that the only reason why the gun went off in the first place was because of this attack, that Travis was not even attempting to shoot him. But because of the encounter, the physical encounter, and Arbery attempting to violently take the firearm away from him, it led to the gun going off. Oh, Lee, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay. I got you. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, I, I don't know if that's ever going to be proven in a court of law or anything, but the, the the fact of the matter is that this was not a racially motivated, you know, pursuit of some innocent jogger running through a, na- you know, in, in a neighborhood innocently. I mean, there was a lot more details that are left out of the story. Right. It was and, not malice murder by any means. And the fact remains that even if he would have, even if Arbery would have just stopped and, or, or, or even just didn't, you know, violently assault Travis, he would probably still be alive today. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, I, you know, I don't know how anybody could look at the situation to come to any other conclusion, frankly. Yeah, I know. So, well, it, it, it really is an absolute travesty. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's tough even recounting these details and, and looking into this. I mean, it's just such an outrageous, you, you know, I don't even have words for it anymore. I mean, it's just a sign of how totally... Our, our country in total decline. The fact that you know this would happen to these two men, who, f- from what I understand by by your testimony, from from what I've been able to read, are, are totally upstanding citizens. You know, men that cared about the the rule of law and protecting their neighborhood and standing up for what's right, and for them to be treated this way is just a total disgrace, a total outrage. And you know, I'm I'm hoping that they can. Well, actually, let's get into that before we wrap up. What where are we at right now in the appeals process? Because they've been convicted by the state, they've been convicted by the federal government. They're basically facing life in prison at this point, correct? Yeah, two life sentences. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, life plus thirty, I guess. Two life plus thirty, something like that. But the federal appeals going on right now. Um. They've. We're in the middle of that, and the state appeal has not started yet. We're waiting on the transcripts from the from the trial um, before it can start. Um, you know, I'm a little nervous about both of them because they're they're appointed lawyers for the federal government and for the state, and I'm really worried about our justice system at this point. Um, you know, our lawyers were, are very liberal, but they've got they got really blackballed for for defending us from their colleagues. It was horrible, and so that's kind of scary when other lawyers, defending lawyers, act that way. Um, so I'm kind of concerned about 
somebody that I'm not paying or that don't know us defending my guys. And that's why I'm trying to raise money, get them some lawyers to help them through this. Right. But we're we're looking at a a pretty long road. I mean, it's I will fight until I die. But um, I at least hope to get Travis out. Yeah. One day. Yeah. And dedicate their name because they are not these men that they have been portrayed to be. And um, we are not that family that we've been portrayed to be. Um, I grew up. My father was a physician on Sapelo Island. Um, it's a kind. Of, I think it's an Ogeechee tribe that lives there, and he did it for free. He went over there every other week. They built him a little clinic, and because he loved people, and that's how I grew up. And he would have never let me marry a racist, and he would have never. My grand, his grandson never would have been. I mean, we're just not those people, but. We've got that reputation now. Yeah, I mean it's it is it is just truly outrageous. Well, I I know I definitely support you. I know the readers of American Free Press no doubt support you. Um, you do have a Give Send Go um fundraiser okay. up. Give Send Go yeah Give Send Go dot com forward slash McMichael Defense and I'll have that linked when I post this podcast program. I know I I donated some money back when I first came across it. I think last year when I wrote the article. Yes, so I, did. Yeah, so I hope people check this out and, and, and chip in, you know, whatever they can. This is an important case, and we'll certainly do everything in our power to continue to, to try to bring the truth to light. I mean, your website does an outstanding job of doing that. Again, I that just, is mcmichaeltrial.com. I mean, go go check that out. Objective, I mean, sit down and read that with an open mind, with an objective mind, and I don't know how you could come to any other conclusion that this was just a total miscarriage of justice. Of justice. Yes, it was. Well, totally unfair, totally politically motivated. I mean, the, this whole Black Lives Matter nonsense and the way everything has been totally weaponized against just any white person, not even necessarily standing up for themselves, but just, I mean, you, you literally like can't even, you can't even defend yourself anymore in this country without being prosecuted for a hate crime. It's outrageous. The double standards are just so in your face anymore. And so unacceptable. And, and as your case shows, you know, there's very few people willing to to stand up and, and, and tell the truth and have some integrity, you know, without being, you know, of course, if you do that, you're going to be attacked and slandered and smeared as your lawyers were, for example, as I'm sure other people that came out and sort of supported you at the at the beginning. That sounds like that was a big problem in this case as well. Yep. Yep. And one thing I do want to say, John, I do want to put out there, of course, it's in the website is that the we were talking about the DAs and it went to a third DA and he was talking about putting it before a grand jury when all of a sudden the GBI came down to investigate this at uh, Governor Kemp's. Basically, I, I last heard you say um, that the there was it was going to be going to a grand jury and then the Georgia Bureau of Investigation came you know got involved. What, what yes. were you saying? Yeah, go ahead. Pick up right there. I was saying the GBI got involved um, at the from orders from Governor Kemp, and they they did an investigation for what twenty four hours before my guys were arrested. 
decided that they had enough evidence to to charge them with murder. And I just wonder what they found different that three months investigation with Glen County didn't find. Right. Well, and, and this was also shortly after, you know, it, it, it turned into this huge national news story and all these activist lawyers and Black Lives Matter people were getting involved, demanding charges, and it became this big political case. And of course, this is right, you know, right around the time of the death of George Floyd and all the protests that that sparked and this whole, you know, violent insurrection basically over the summer of 2020. You know, so all of this, you know, obviously played a a factor in the in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and in the state of Georgia, the 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 governor himself, um, you know, to to make this politically motivated decision to prosecute. And um, I mean, again, going back to the pretrial hearing um, involving the testimony of the detective that interviewed Roddy Bryan who claimed that, you know, your son stood over Arbery and, and, you know, used a racial slur, which of course is not true at all, total fabrication. But that was the one of the motivating factors behind all of this. I mean, people really believed that and thought that yeah. that really happened. And I mean, frankly, even if, even if that were the case, which it wasn't, I don't understand how that would even play a role given the facts involved in this case where this man is attacking Travis with the firearm you know, but but either way, I mean, it's 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 sort of it, it clearly it clearly played a role, and you know the the political the politically motivated nature of all of this is is very obvious to any objective observer. Yep, you're correct. So, well, Lee, thank you very much for taking the time to to speak about this case. It is, I'm sure, I can only imagine. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking for me to 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 go through this. I can I can't even imagine what it's like for you. I'm I'm so sorry for. Everything that's happened, it's it's really just a, a total disgrace. It makes me it makes my blood boil, frankly. It's a total outrage. It's a total affront to truth and honor and integrity and you know to to everything that decent people stand for. So it's it's really difficult. But you know we're gonna do what we can to support you and 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 try our best to get the story out there and help you raise some funds and and you know pray for both. Your son and your husband, especially, you know, this is just uh, an incredible situation that they're that they're involved in, and, and it's just it's just heartbreaking. Well, I, I appreciate it, John. It is heartbreaking. It's, um, well, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. You hang in there. I will definitely stay in touch, and um, you know, I'll keep you posted, and and you know, maybe we can do this again. Um, also, I was going to ask you. I, I should ask you this via email, but maybe if you have um contact information or maybe that's on the the uh, give send go or the actual website if anybody wanted to to write them a letter or something like that is that is that a possibility yes that would that would be they live for letters travis okay. has got travis has got a little following and greg's not getting any mail and i don't understand that i don't know if it's just being withheld because travis is getting quite a bit and um he lives for the support he's getting because he knows okay, that good, he's yeah. So I could, um, I don't know how to get it out there. I could put it, I could, I could send it to you if you yeah. want to put it. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll, we'll do it via email. That way I have it exactly. And I can just put it right on the website and you know, if anybody's interested, they can send a letter. Okay. That'd be great. Okay. Well, Lee, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. You have a great evening and I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much, John. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.